I love Jesus today. Anybody else in the room agree with that? The early church would greet one another with the phrase, He is risen, and the others would respond, He is risen indeed. So let's try that. He is risen. He is risen risen indeed. Amen. Um, If you would, take your cell phone out with me, if you would, real quick. And uh, everybody grab it out of your purse, out of your pocket, your coat pocket, wherever it is. Help us out and hit silent on that real quick. Um, So appreciate everybody. Uh, We're sort of doing a soft launch today on the live YouVersion event. Uh, Many of you have been enjoying reading through YouVersion with a great program that keeps you sort of focused on reading through the Bible in 90 days, in six months, in a year, in two years, in three years, whatever goal you set to do that. And there's a bunch of translations there. But they offer a great thing on their app where you can search for a live event or you can plug in that URL right there and you have everything that you have in your notes, but then some. All the scriptures are printed out there. You can actually send us a prayer request or you can respond to the message. Uh, We're really going to be hitting the ground running with this next Sunday with our new series in the Gospel of Mark called On His Mark, uh, what we'll be starting next Sunday morning. Uh, we'll be hopefully doing some interactive stuff throughout the series. But today, if you have version on your smartphone, then you can pick up not only what's in your message notes, but all the scriptures are printed out there for you, and it sends you to the link. It's really kind of cool. So if you'd stand with me one more time, please. Um, we are finishing today a series called Blueprint. And I realize that some, some of you, this is your first time to be here And we're not going to go back and preach the seven messages prior to this, but this one that we wrap up with is central to all of them because it's called resurrection. It changes everything. Look at your neighbor right now and say, neighbor, Jesus is alive. And that changes everything. If you would find a screen somewhere that you can read from comfortably, and let's read our two passages, one from Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and then we have an extended passage from the gospel of John. Here we go. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We've been doing that one every week. Now, this is our eighth week. This morning, our message text is actually taken from the Gospel of John. I sat down this week and I read through every one of the resurrection passages in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and this one really jumped off the page at me, and I've preached from every one of them. This is probably the uh, 25th Easter or so that I've preached a message on Easter Sunday, and this one seemed to jump out at me for today's message. It's a little bit lengthy, but I want you to read with me, so let's gear up, and here we go. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, 
and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Pray with me this morning. Gracious God, thank you for this opportunity together today and to lift our hearts in worship to you. Thank you, Jesus, that the story that we've heard all of our lives literally is the hinge point of history. It's the most critical event to happen in the universe in the history of humankind. We've come to celebrate today and to say, Jesus Christ, you are Lord over all the earth. You're Lord over our lives. We give you honor and glory that is due your name. We ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would come today and lift the veil off of our eyes, that you would give us the ability to see and perceive and understand. You're the only teacher. I can't do anything apart from you. I thank you that you are moving and working and teaching and instructing your people today. Do what only you can do. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and all the glory. And that is in the strong name of Jesus and all of God's people said. You may be seated together in the presence of the Lord. How many of you enjoyed that worship this morning? Wasn't that fantastic? Praise God. Amen. So very, very thankful for our extremely talented group. Uh, and that's not all of them. We have any time because we're cycling through and giving some a rest. Um, and those that have been taking a rest will be coming back and giving some of these a break. So I'm so thankful for this crazy, talented group of people that we have here at Victory. I want to say a special thanks this morning, not just to the praise team, because it's not just about what happens on Sunday morning, but it's about what everybody does all week long. We had folks up here painting, getting, don't, doesn't the cafe look great? Do you love that red wall? Is that awesome? Uh, all kinds of things going on. Pastor Haley and the whole group with Victory Kids were doing an amazing job getting that whole Victory Kids back haul uh, ready for Easter with great pictures on the walls of your children and little handprints that they have put up. It's just a beautiful area back there. I've been saying for a year I wanted those gray walls to come alive. It's a little bit institutional for me. My office is on that wall. I said, this, this, this hall should come alive. And so they've done an amazing job. Let's give all of these folks a great big hand. They've, they've cleaned, they've painted, they've put in new tiles and got things together. And so we're so thankful to have you to, today. If you're a first-time guest, thank you for coming. My name is Michael. I'm excited to have you here. There are a lot of great choices for churches in the city of West Memphis and Marion. And we understand that. We thank you that you've honored us and the Lord in being here with us and choosing victory to worship with us today. For all of our regulars, would you give our guests a hand, please? Thank you for being with us this morning. As we come, the most honored guest is the Son of God. And we celebrate the fact that he is not dead, but he is alive. He is risen. This morning, we want to begin with a principle. And from that principle of introduction today, I want to build out very quickly five points that I believe are important for how we live our lives in light of what we celebrate today. This is not just about ham on Sunday with the family or hiding eggs with the children. As wonderful as that is and, and you know, breaking an ear off the chocolate bunny and Forget the ear. Give me the whole thing, you know. <laughs> Chocolate. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Man, there is a Greek word for it, too. Praise God. Um, all of those things that we love so much in family time and sharing, as wonderful and beautiful as all of those things are, they could not be possible if what we celebrate today had not happened. 
So this morning we begin from this principle. The introduction says it this way. The historical rooting or grounding may be a little better way to say it. And, you know, it's always great after you've already printed the notes, you think of the better way to say it. The historical rooting or the grounding of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central truth of Christianity. Everybody say center. center. Abby sang the song this morning, which is one of our favorites. Michael Gunger, Israel Houghton, wrote, Jesus, be the center. Be the center of my life. Be the center of everything, Lord. Be the center of our church. Jesus at the center. That's what it all is all about because it all revolves around him. It, the scripture says that he is the one who holds everything together. So he is the center of life. He's the center of all of our existence. This morning, as we look to these five things, I just want to build out this introduction just for a moment. And there is a passage in First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. So just listen as I read. It won't appear on the screen. But if you have you version, you'll see it there. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. So Paul the Apostle is writing, and he says, this thing that I've been preaching to you, he says, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance. Everybody say, first importance. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas. Everybody say Peter. Peter. It's another name for Peter. Cephas. Then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. That's at the time of this writing of the letter by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth, to the Corinthians. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, two words that I want you to remember out of that passage, and that's the two words, first importance. Everybody say first importance. So we're obviously talking about priority. We're talking about something that is critical. The resurrection is central to Christianity. If this were not a validly authenticated historical truth, then everything that we believe would be all in vain. The Apostle Paul says if he is not resurrected, then your faith is in vain and you are still in sin. And we are of most men miserable, without hope. I want you to see this morning that what Paul is writing to us is to verify and to give us historical evidence you know, there are a lot of challenges to the veracity of the claims of Jesus Christ. I always wait for this time of year because there will be this sorry-looking picture of Jesus on the cover of Time magazine, and it will always say, debunking the myth. And there will be something on the History Channel and all the various uh, liberal kinds of channels that are all promoting a different kind of worldview. I don't have time to review what we've been talking about in this seven weeks prior, but we've talked about Darwinian evolution. We've talked about relativism. All of these different kinds of worldviews that are challenging, that are competing for your thinking and for your belief. They're competing for believers, and they have an end in mind. They're attempting to try to work 
toward a certain idea of the system of their utopia. When you believe in their principles that if all the world uh, was uh, evolutionary, then we are without or with any kind of a belief system regarding God. If all, all the world embraced a secularist idea or a relativist idea, there is no more true truth with a capital T. Christianity stands in distinction in the midst of all of those competing truth claims. And it is unique in that uh, separate from all of the other religious systems of the world, it is not merely based on story or myth, but it is completely rooted in historical fact. Jesus Christ was a historical person, verified, alive, crucified uh, uh, by, by, by Roman centurions, uh, sentenced by Pilate. We recognize historians that don't even believe uh, in the, the salvation effects of Jesus Christ will tell you that a real man named Jesus lived who claimed to be the Christ. More and more they make attempts to try to prove that this issue of a resurrected Savior is not true and those who end up trying to prove it false, three out of four times, 75% of them end up becoming believers. And the other quarter are just denying pure facts. People would not be martyred for a myth. Folks would not lay down their lives at the time of a crucial moment in whether they were going to continue to profess or confess Christ or they would deny Him if it were just something that were made up to concoct an idea that was going to be popular for a generation or two. No, no, we're not talking about a couple of generations. We're talking about two millennia. We're talking 2,000 years later and the historical fact of a risen Savior is still changing the world one person at a time. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise this morning. The historical fact, the historical rooting of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fact that He is raised from the dead, is the central truth of Christianity. It is the bedrock upon which every one of the others are supported and stand. And too often, gospel preachers will tell you that you are saved by His death, and they stop there, and that is only half of what we call the finished work of Christ, because He didn't stay on the cross, and He didn't stay in the tomb. But the third day, He was raised from the dead, and this morning, we serve a risen Savior. Come on, somebody, give the Lord some praise. <clears throat> Hear this. A Christian is someone who believes in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ and lives in light of the implications of that event. I'm going to say it again. A Christian is someone who believes in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ and lives in the light of the implications of that event. That's a quote from, uh, from Adrian Warnock who wrote a great book called Raised with Christ. It wasn't until about 100 years ago we went for almost 19 centuries, 1900 years before anyone dared to stand up and claim to be a Christian at the same time denying the historical validity of the resurrected Christ. Higher criticism out of Germany and what was embraced by liberal Christianity in America in the late 1800s in the turn of the 20th century, the early 1900s, was the very first time you will find in history that anyone would actually make an attempt to stand up and say they were Christians without believing that Jesus was raised from the dead. It's a complete farce. There's, there, there is no biblical substantiation for that kind of a Christianity whatsoever. 
A few years ago, I read a book by Christopher Hitchens, who is an avowed atheist. He wrote a book called God is Not Great, Why Religion Poisons Everything. And I, I read books by these guys because I want to know what they're saying and what the arguments are. And there were a couple of things that he brought that were very interesting, but most of them were the same kind of tired old atheistic arguments that if you've ever studied apologetics, some of these things would be familiar to you. And my time this morning doesn't allow me to dig any deeper into that except to tell you about a time when he was being interviewed by a Unitarian minister. A lady by the name of Marilyn Sewell was a Unitarian minister, I believe out from the Portland, Oregon area, and she was interviewing him regarding his book in the year after it had come out. And this, you can see this on uh, the internet, I think YouTube. I've actually watched it two or three different places on Vimeo or Vimeo, however you say that, YouTube, different places. And she's questioning him. She says, Mr. Hitchens, the, the religion that you write about in your book, God is Not Great, is really the fundamentalist faith. And she says, I just want to tell you that uh, I am a liberal Christian and I don't believe that Jesus died for my sins. I don't believe in any kind of a sense of the atonement. Um, I, I don't believe that the miracles were real. I believe that they're just nice stories. And I certainly don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And Christopher Hitchens looked up over the edge of his glasses and he said this. He said, well, Miss Sewell, I would just say to you today that if you do not believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and that he was raised again on the third day, then you are not in any sense of the true meaning of the word a Christian. Now, this is an atheist. And it's a sad state of affairs when an atheist has a better grasp on what the real meaning of the gospel is than someone who's supposed to be a minister, a so-called minister of that very same gospel. And it wasn't until a hundred years ago where people would actually separate the two in terms of saying they were Christians without believing in the historical accuracy, the validation, the historical truth of a resurrected Christ. Paul said it this way in Romans. The gospel is built on this premise. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's very simple. It's not a formula. It's just an understanding of this is the root, this is the principle, this is the center. Everything else flows out of this. The historical veracity, the truthfulness to the fact that Jesus got up out of the ground and history proves it and evidence is there to verify it. Who else do you think a government would guard a tomb with a set of soldiers except this man that they call Jesus the Christ? And on that morning when the women went to visit these who had prepared the darkest day in history, the day between the crucifixion on Good Friday and Holy Saturday is that darkest day in all of history. And they prepared themselves with the various herbs and spices and all of these things to anoint the body of Jesus that they fully expected to be still in the ground. Hopes had been raised because of the amazing feats that people had observed. Three and a half years, a short little, just a little time where Jesus had all of a sudden his, the, 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 the amazing demonstration of the principles of God being shown in power by miraculous confirmation over and over. He would preach and the people would hear the word and their faith would grow and blind eyes would pop open and deaf ears would be unstopped and Deaf tongues would speak and lame people would walk and men with withered hands would stretch them out and start using them and guys would roll up their mats and get up from a 38-year experience of being crippled and they would walk off and, and it was stirring some folks up and 
people were seeing him take five loaves and two fish and feed 20,000 people and they had hopes of the possibility of this Jesus actually being their king, that this might be the Messiah, that he would take the Romans out of their power and that he would raise Israel to a place of preeminence among the nations again the way they had once enjoyed. Hopes were high. People were singing the praises of God. It was just a week prior where they cut branches down of the trees and they threw their coats into the streets as Jesus rode a donkey down into Jerusalem and they shouted, Hosanna to the Son of the Highest! There was amazing hope. It was just, there was an attitude of expectation, an atmosphere that people were living in and breathing, going, He is here. He is the Messiah. And then something drastically changed Holy Week. Monday, Thursday, Jesus is gathered with his disciples in an upper room and he tells them the fateful events that are going to take place. And they're still not truly understanding it, still not believing it. And he's carried away into. Three mock trials during the night and the next morning by Pilate who washes his hands to say, I find no fault in this man. And Jews that were a week ago shouting Hosanna to the son of David are now screaming, crucify him and give us Barabbas. And this hope-filled nation that once thought that this man was the answer to their prayers for a Messiah that would turn things around for them they now saw vilified and hanging between heaven and earth on a cross with blood streaming down and people spitting at him and hurling accusations and all kinds of foul, blasphemous things coming out of the mouths of people. While the one that they had hoped for, then this one that was hanging on the cross, I wonder if there were any in the crowd that remembered what he said, that if the Son of Man be lifted up from the earth, I will... Draw all men unto me. I don't, I don't think so. I think in that moment there was such a level of disappointment. All of that had happened. The hopes had been dashed. The glory of a possible coming kingdom seemed to have just all dripped out of the body of this Savior whom that they had loved. And the women gathered that morning and I thought about it today as I drove into the church early this morning before 8 and there was a heavy fog that just seemed to sit down over Crittenden County and Marion in West Memphis. And I thought about those ladies taking that little dusty trail down into the place where that tomb was, expecting to find soldiers there guarding the tomb and the body of the one that they loved to be lying there dead. But when they got there, they didn't realize how things had dramatically changed. And all the preparation they had to anoint his body was not needed any longer because the angel of the Lord spoke and said, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Why would you look for the living one in the cemetery? And they left and they carried the news. And when they carried the news, they got back to Peter and John. And what we read this morning, Peter and John are on their way running, hoping in their heart, hoping against hope. Could this possibly be true? And I want to tell you this morning, because 500 saw him, because the 12 saw him, because a crazy madman by the name of Saul of Tarsus who was killing Christians met him one day on the Damascus road and he gives his testimony by saying one who is untimely born saw this living Christ and he changed his life. He turned his life and became a follower of this Jesus. Five things this morning I want you to see. A Christian is someone who believes in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ and lives in light of the implications of that event. Number one, because he is alive, folks, Jesus is Lord and Messiah. Say that with me. Jesus is Lord and Messiah. 
The Bible says in Romans chapter 1 verse 4, He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The fact, not that He died for your sins, but that the sacrifice was accepted and He got up out of the grave is what is so critical. Because any of us in the room can die in the place of someone else. But I guarantee you that our stories wouldn't be the same as His with us getting up afterward. Jesus not only died for you, but now He lives for you. And because He lives for you, a Christian is supposed to live a life of worship to the one who deserves it all. He is Lord and He is Messiah. He's Lord over everything. He's Lord over every, every stray molecule on the planet. There is not a maverick one out there that His sovereignty is not overseeing. There's not a planet in the solar system or, a so, or another system out there in the Milky Way galaxy or another galaxy in the whole known universe that Jesus Jesus Christ and His word of power is not overseeing because He is Lord over everything. He is Lord and He is Messiah. And a Christian is supposed to live a life of worship to the one who deserves it all. Number two, number two, the Lamb of God took away the sin of the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Bible says it this way, For he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Every bull, goat, ram, sheep, dove that was ever slain and the, and the blood was spilt in the past under the old covenant system of sacrifices and the shedding of blood, none of them were able truly to atone for sin. They just rolled it over into a great big promissory note with the interest mounting. But when Jesus Christ became the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world, it was in one Instant, completely dealt with. It changes your past. Come on, somebody. Give the Lord some praise this morning. The Lamb of God took away the sin of the world, and a Christian now lives a life by the power of an exchanged life. He died for you. Now you live for Him. He took your sin. He paid the penalty. He removed its power. You can be free. You do not have to be in bondage to any kind of destructive pattern of behavior. You can walk in victory because Christ has conquered everything. Come on, somebody. Number three, Jesus conquered death by tasting it for every man. Jesus conquered death by tasting it for every man. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Your number is in there. He tasted it for you. Somebody said it this way. If you're born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you die once. There are only two men in the earth, Adam and Christ. We are all part of one of those two companies. We're part of the company of Adam incorporated. We're all born into sin. We're born into Adam. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in Adam all die. It follows the verse. It says, but in Christ shall all be made alive. I am born in sin, naturally in Adam. But then I am born again into Christ. And now what? Where death used to reign, life now reigns in my life. And if I'm born once, I will die twice, physically and spiritually. But if I'm born twice, naturally and rebirth, a spirit birth, 
being born again from heaven, then the Bible says I will only die once and that's a physical death because I have now a whole new perspective. He's tasted death for every man and a Christian is supposed to live in light of an eternal perspective. Number four, are you getting anything out of this this morning? Jesus is the beginning of the new creation of God. He literally is the prototype of a whole new kind of God-man. He is all God. He is all man. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us, God in the flesh. And now because he has died as the sin sacrifice, taking away the sins of the world, and he's been raised up now in a flesh, sinew, muscle, bone, body, literally because he is alive in that body, I want to tell you that matter matters. Your life in every way matters. Your finances, your emotions, your health, your relationships, the choices you make, the dreams you have, the goals that God, I believe, has put as a desire in your heart for you to walk into. All of those things matter. Not only to you, but they matter to God. Your life matters. It counts. Listen to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through about 20. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things. Everybody say all things. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. What do you keep hearing in this whole passage? What what is He emphasizing? Everybody say all things. So He's Lord over all. Everything is being held together by Him. He is before all things. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard everybody say all things you know what that's that means all things i i, I checked the greek and the, the greek word for all means all all things That means everything on the planet now is under His supervision. That means even the sinner out there that does not know that Jesus Christ is Lord over everything, that God is actually through the the lordship of the agency of Jesus Christ is ruling the planet, not one of these days, but right now. He's not coming back to be the King of Kings. When He comes back, He's already the King of Kings. He's already the King of Kings right now. He's the Lord of Lords because He's alive and He's conquered death and He's tasted death for every man and He's become the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. He is Lord and He's Messiah. He is all of those things. That means that all of life now, I as a believer, am to be pressing the crown rights of Jesus Christ into every aspect of life. That means I'm to enjoy the air outside and the sound of the robin the grass that's growing and the grass that's mowed and that I cut it to the glory of God and the flowers that I plant and the vegetables that I grow this year in my little garden patch, it's to the glory of God and all of that's being held together by this one who is the center of everything. 
That means that I'm not just enjoying life from my little Christian subculture, a little ghettoized kind of a version of what I do over here with all of my buddies in Christ. But that means that now I can look at a piece of art that may not even be religious at all in its expression. But it, it, it may be something that I can enjoy the fact that God gave that gift and it magnifies Him and His creation. I, I can enjoy the, the, the music that's come from the guy who's experienced pain and he puts it together in, in eight bars of, of, a, of a blues riff. And I can feel the pain in that and I can thank God that Jesus is Lord over that pain and He's Lord over the ability that He put in that man's life to express that and that little bit of a blues. And I, and I can say that because Christ is in my heart that I don't have to stay blue all of my life. But I can have some joy. And I can, I, can enjoy, I can enjoy the sunset and I can look at the moon and I can, I can kiss my wife to the glory of God. I can, in, I can hug my children and I can love them and I can enjoy my friendship with those that are around me. And, and sometimes the difficult seasons that we walk through, I'm so thankful for brothers who love me and that are still walking with me. And even in some difficult seasons, I'm thankful that relationships are proven and they're solid and we're standing together. And I'm thankful that we're doing it to the glory of God because Jesus Christ has reconciled all things. It means that I can stand up in a city that's still divided racially and I can look at a black brother and a yellow sister and a, and a, and a red man and I can look at a Latino and a, and a brown person and I can dream the dream of God putting a body together in this city that defies all of that brokenness and that God can reconcile. And that, that what I grew up singing, red and yellow, black and white, they're all precious in His sight, that there really is a place where we can come and we can experience the beauty of all the cultures from which we've come and we can, we can, we can, we can taste of this amazing stew and we can look at this great tapestry of all of these cultures that Jesus said out of every kindred, tribe and nation and tongue that they'll be gathered around the throne of God worshiping Him. And, and we can get our blues on and we can get a little hip-hop and we can go south to the islands and, and we can do a little bit of high church and we can do a little bit of black gospel and we can do a little bit of Mumford and Sons for Jesus and we can put on our bluegrass and we can even do some southern gospel and we can put all this stuff together and realize that God's Lord over all of that and all of it's a beautiful expression of the fact that He's made that all solely for His glory. We can look around this room and I can see variety. I can see red hair and blonde hair and brown hair and black hair and blue eyes and brown eyes and green eyes and I can see it's an amazing combination of what God's made and that you were made uniquely to show His glory. Amen. Every one of you in this room with the love that He's poured out upon you. And I just want you to see this morning as I bring this message to its close, a Christian is called to live a whole new kind of life. You're to look at the world a whole different kind of way. Number five, and I'm finished. Jesus' death clears your path but His life secures your future. He died for you. Your sins are forgiven, not only what you did, but what you might do and anything in the future where you might miss it. It's all covered by His blood. But thank God it's not just about His death. The gospel is not just that He died for you. The gospel is that He died for you and that He was raised again for you. Come on, somebody. Listen, and I'm finished. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, Romans 5.10. So much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. 
His death clears your past, but His life secures your future. If you have any ability to walk in victory right now, it's because His life is working on the inside of you. It is because of the finished work of the cross and the fact that He got up out of the grave and the tomb is empty and that He is alive and that He's working in your heart and in your life. As I close this message this morning, I think about this passage. I think about Peter and John responding to the words of the women. And they're hoping against hope that the possibility of the report, the news that they just got, might actually be real. It might be legitimate. So they get up and they run to the tomb because they knew exactly where they had laid Jesus. Peter is running with all of his might and John outruns him. John is writing about himself. He describes himself in this gospel when he says, The one whom Jesus loved. Just a couple of nights before, he had leaned against the breast and heard the heartbeat of God sitting at the table when Jesus broke the bread and he shared the juice and he said, This is my blood of my new covenant shed for the remission of your sins. John had taken a drink from the cup and he had eaten a piece of the bread. He had noticed how Jesus had folded his napkin at the end of the meal that night. When John and Peter both ran to the tomb and John stopped, he stooped to look in and he saw the linen clothes lying and he saw (coughs) literally the, the cloth that covered the face lying in another place folded. Peter ran in and he was astonished because they'd both sat at the table a couple of nights before and eaten the Passover meal with Jesus. It was customary among the Hebrews, among the Israelite culture, that when you finished a meal, that you thank the host specifically. You don't just throw the napkin down the way some of you will do after you eat your Easter ham and your potato salad today. But they would literally take the napkin and they would fold the napkin and everybody had their own unique way of doing it. And John observed that this way, that the napkin had been folded at the table a couple of nights before and had been laid to the side of where Jesus was eating was now folded the exact same way that the master had always folded his napkins after he had concluded his meal. He laid it over to the side and he observed and John is standing there looking and he sees the linen cloths lying there in a crumple. The linen cloths that had covered the body of Jesus are still lying there. They're not folded up but the one that had covered the head The one that had covered the face of Jesus, the face cloth, was folded and was lying over in another place by itself. What does that mean? I believe there's something extremely powerful and prophetic in that because now you are part of Christ. You are in Christ. The Bible says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. The old is gone, the new is come, and we're a part of this company in the earth. You're either part of Adam or you're part of Christ. In Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. And this morning, because you know Jesus Christ and He's alive in you, He is the head of the body of Christ. And we are the body of Christ. So John and Peter run in and they see the linen cloths that had covered the body lying over there to the side, not folded up, but they're crumpled up. And, but the, the face cloth that had covered the head, it was folded neatly and lying in a place by itself. And what I want to tell you is that Christ the head has already gone and finished He's totally, completely satisfied. He's eaten the meal. He's conquered death. He's folded up the death cloth personally himself. He's literally pulled the sting out of death 
But John and Peter walk in and they see the linen cloths lying crumpled up. And what I want to tell you is this is a promise that what God the Father did in the head, in the Son, He's also going to do in the body. There will come a day when those linen cloths will be folded up signifying that it's completely done and death has been conquered in every member of the body, in your life, in my life. Jesus Christ has already conquered death for every man. But He's done it with the promise that not only will the head do it, but also the whole body. There will be a day when death will no longer reign in your life, in your body. And that is the promise of what Jesus began on Resurrection Sunday 2,000 years ago. He said, Behold, I make all things new. He was the beginning of the new creation of God. This morning as we bring this service to a close, and we say again, it's of a, it's a first importance. It's all about Jesus. He is the center of everything. It's not me or my desires. It's not this church. Jesus is the center of everything. Jesus is the center of the kingdom of God in West Memphis. Victory is just one church among a number of them. We're all working to advance the kingdom of God. I thank you for stepping out and taking time to come and worship with us this morning, but I would be completely missing God if I didn't close this service with a challenge. And it's not just about slipping into a service once or twice a year and sort of checking that off of your list and knowing that you've maybe made God happy. We're not inviting you at this moment, at the close of this service, merely to pray a prayer. But I'm inviting you to have a whole life change. That is to walk with Jesus and to follow Him. As they bring the lights down, I want you to pay quick attention. I have a video I want you to watch. just a couple minutes long. So I've got this friend, I'll call him John. John's first exposure to the whole concept of hell was when he was watching a Tom and Jerry cartoon when he was younger. And what was intended to be this humorous cartoon all of a sudden turned into this hellacious nightmare when Tom did something bad to Jerry and was thrown into hell as a result. And later, John was at his church and he was talking with an older man about what he'd seen. And the older man looked at John and said, John, you don't wanna go to hell, do you? John said, no. So the man looked back at him and said, okay, pray this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, John kind of paused. There's some awkward silence. And then he realized he was supposed to say exactly what the man had said. So he said, dear Jesus. And the man continued, I know that I'm a sinner and I believe that Jesus died for my sins. And I ask you to come into my heart and save me. And then when they were finished, the man looked at John and said, Son, now you can know that you are saved from your sins and you don't ever have to worry about hell again. Is that true? Is this really what it means to become a disciple of Jesus? Is this really what it means to follow him? You look back at the first disciples in the Bible and when Jesus came up to them and said, follow me, that was not an invitation to pray a prayer. That was a summons for these men to lose their lives. Somewhere along the way, 2,000 years later, amid varying cultural ties and popular church trends, we have virtually missed that call. With good intentions, with sincere desires to reach as many people as possible for Jesus, we've taken challenging words from Christ and turned them into trite phrases in the church. And in the process, we've drained the lifeblood out of Christianity and replaced it with a watered-down version of the gospel that is so palatable, it's not even real anymore. And the consequences are catastrophic. Scores of men, 
women and children culturally identify themselves as Christians today who biblically are not followers of Christ. Is that possible? Absolutely it is. In fact, according to Jesus, it's probable. He said at the end of his most famous sermon, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And I will tell them, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Those are some of the most frightening words in all of the Bible. As a pastor, I stay awake some nights, haunted by the thought that many people, many people who are sitting in church on Sunday will be shocked to stand before Jesus one day and hear him say to them, I never knew you, away from me. We desperately need to take a look at our lives and our churches and ask the question, are we really biblically personally following Jesus? Eternity is dependent on how we answer that question. That is the question this morning. It's not just whether or not you've ever prayed the prayer. <clears throat> because I'm convinced that if I've prayed the prayer and I'm not following him, then the answer to that question is no, I'm not biblically, personally following Jesus. So this morning I want to challenge you. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We're not going to be long. Pray you've been blessed by this presence of the Lord in this place. But we're at a critical moment. And I challenge you to soberly search your heart. The Bible says examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Today it's not an invitation to a prayer. It's an invitation to a different kind of life. It's to follow Jesus. It's to die to your past and to live now to his future for you. And so with everything that's in me, everything that we've done as we've prepared this week, it's all about this very moment right here. Every head bowed, every eye closed. And I want to ask you, if you're ready to say, Pastor, I, 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 I may even have prayed this prayer in the past, but I want this day to take a step and decide to follow Jesus. If anybody in the room this morning, if you're ready to cross that line of faith and say, Pastor, that's me. I'm, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out. Nobody's looking around. The lights are down. Heads are bowed. Eyes are closed. But I want to ask you, if you'd like to be included in this prayer, would you please just slip your hand up? You were saying right now, Pastor, I'm ready to follow Jesus. No turning back. Anybody in the room, just slip up your hand. Yes, thank you. I see. Different. Each section. Just another moment. Anyone else? I'll say, Pastor, please pray for me. All heads are bowed, or all eyes are closed. We're praying right now. Father, in the name of Jesus, we stand upon the promise of your word that tells us that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you've said that we would be saved. And God, we thank you for the opportunity to pray the prayer today, but we know that that prayer is merely a door, an entry, an entry into a whole new way of life, dying to myself, to my past, and living now to the future that Christ has laid out for me. I pray now by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit for every man and woman in this place who raised their hands, Lord, that you do a work of the Spirit that no man can do. 
It's not in my persuasive words, but it's in the power of the unction of the Holy Spirit moving in the heart and the life of these men and women. You're calling your sheep by name right now, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father, that we make that turn. We turn away from sin. We turn to you. Thank you, Jesus, that you come into our hearts and save us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Jesus, be Lord of our lives. Help us to follow you in everything that we do to bring glory to your name. All of God's people said. Put your hands together.